You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, warm welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and to this seminar where we will be discussing future and leadership of the European Union. My name is Ylva Pettersson. I work here with the Institute. Uh, this seminar is part of a series that we arranged together with the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies, uh, and it will result in an anthology to be published very shortly, where you can read more about these um, key thoughts on the European future. We will also be recording this seminar, so it will be a podcast available within a few days. So what is the status of leadership in the EU today? What role is Germany and the German-French uh, axis playing? And is there room for Europe to take on a leadership at the global level uh, in times when US leadership is scaled down? These are some of the questions that we have asked Almut Meller to answer for us. And Almut, um, co-head of the Berlin office of the European uh, Council on Foreign Affairs and also senior policy fellow. Uh, and before that, you were also at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and uh, to comment on Almut's presentation, we have Björn Fagerstein, a colleague of mine and senior research fellow and director of the Europe program here at UI. Most welcome to both of you. Uh, I think I will leave the microphone to you, Almut. Uh, please uh, share your thoughts on who leads the EU with us. Thank you very much, Ilva. Good afternoon. Thank you very much to the UI and to CEPS for inviting me. I was very happy to receive the invitation. It is uh, very good to be in Stockholm and it is very good uh, to be here with you. Um, I'm grateful for a question that is impossible to answer. <laughs> so I try and do my very best and hopefully um, this will be of interest and we can have a conversation. Um, about it. I mean, who leads the EU? In a way, I'd like to respond, uh, well, we the people. Who else should be leading the European Union? That's how it's supposed to work. But we know it is more complex uh, than that. And um, I will try to approach this question um, from various angles uh, and also do my job in responding to the questions uh, that Ilva, uh, Björn, uh, Christa, um, um, the team uh, at CIEPS with Göran uh, put to me to really respond also um, to Germany's role, um, to uh, which is really the lens that I'm um, using right now quite a bit because I am working for the European Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. We try to be among the institutions in Berlin um, that help understand the Germans that um, Europe has a lot of different views and we try to help uh, strengthen uh, the variety of European views in the German capital, but um, you might notice, and forgive me for that, that a lot of the things that I say might sound to you still quite a bit of a German perspective on things. We will talk about Germany and also about the Franco-German dimension um, with um, the latest in the media about uh, the renewal of the Franco-German alliance um, in the form of the Traité Lex-la-Chapelle, the, um, um, so the Treaty of Aachen, and I will also talk about that, and I'm happy to go into the conversation also about uh, more um, of the contemporary issues that are um, driving the debate in the European Union, the European elections, etc. But for the time being, who leads the EU? So here is my thinking about this. 
I mean, in a way, I pointed out um, it could be easy and we could say, well, the people are leading the European Union. There is essentially, based on the European treaties, two sources of legitimacy. One is really the People's Chamber, that's the European Parliament, that has been strengthened in successive treaty reforms with the Treaty of Lisbon, um, got to the point where we can say there is two chambers of legislation um, at ice level in the EU context. Uh, the one is the European people's representation, the European Parliament. Um, we are all gearing up for the May 2019 European Parliament elections. Uh, and the second source of legitimacy, the second chamber of legislation, is the articulation of the member states. So the two pillars, and of course we have a say in how our member states are run. Um, we vote our governments into office and our governments are traveling to uh, Brussels and uh, to all the tables that European um, leaders and ministers are meeting these days. Of course, with the knowledge that at home uh, our peoples are watching, we all are watching, and we are following so much more closely European Union affairs than we have probably done some 20 or 30 years ago. Now, um, obviously we know it's more complex than that, um, especially over the past decade of... Uh, a whole number of crises that have hit the Union that I'm sure you have all discussed and talked about quite a lot. Um, but then, of course, it's fair to say, well, um, in a way, we, we have to acknowledge that the European Council is really quite important, um, where the big leaders are gathering and where the ad hoc meetings have really accelerated in the cause of the crises. It was almost a standing committee at uh, some stage in particular during the Eurozone uh, crisis, um, which very relevant for my country, not... Uh, certainly of interest, but maybe in the immediate impact a little bit less relevant for the non-Eurozone um, members, an acceleration of a lot of uh, high-level meetings in the absence of procedures, in the absence of a role, um, a fixed role of parliaments necessarily, where only at a later stage some procedures were put in place, uh, also strengthening the role of national parliaments. Um, so, of course, the European Council, and I will return to that, has been uh, leading on a lot of things. And in the European Council, we know that some probably are more equal uh, than others in the sense that power plays a role and that um, some are more powerful than others, some are more willing than others um, in uh, terms of leadership. So um, we can't ignore that. Some are saying, well, leadership really in the course of the past years has been tremendously important um, and taken on by the European Central Bank. Um, maybe the euro was not going to be um, around for much longer if the central bank hadn't taken up this role. Um, and then alongside with that is the question over the le democratic legitimacy of the European Central Bank. This is, these are all conversations that we have had as, as Europeans, and I deem they are important. The European Court of Justice, of course, there is a lot of research uh, telling us about the driving force that has been um, the, the court um, in the course of European integration, um, crucial institution. And then, of course, we see that the national and subnational levels are very important. National parliaments, who had a say over successive bailout uh, programs, again, uh, Eurozone-related, but just to give an example. Um, we have parliaments, uh, if you remember, in the days um, uh, when the European Union tried to secure a trade agreement with Canada, um, where a regional parliament in Belgium found it quite difficult and held up the process and uh, stuck up. Uh, with its questions and doubts. Um, and that, of course, you might call somewhat a bit of a negative leadership, but still something that um, was relevant in the moment because uh, it prevented the others from moving. And um, so 
I think that, that there's a level of complexity in the question um, that makes it also interesting uh, to look at it. And I think we have to focus now really to understand the interaction of all these uh, players and arenas a little bit better at the um, overall environment that the European Union and its member states find themselves in. But first, I would like to address the question uh, that is a bit of an extension to the question of who leads the European Union. And that is, who leads the European Union, but to what end? What are we looking at? What is leadership for? And uh, I think in the earlier days, one might be tempted to say, well, the answer to that question was easier. There was more of a consensus, but really there wasn't. I mean, um, those of you who have studied and continue to study the history of European integration know very well that this question of finalité, of where are we actually heading in constitutional terms and in institutional terms, was never really one that was, um, well, easy to answer, um, even with the unity um, of a union of, or a community of uh, six founding member states. So this was a question, if you look at the sort of constitutional level of things, was left open quite a bit, um, and for all the good reasons, I believe. But then we can also go more to the um, level of EU politics and say, well, what are the policies um, really that need leadership uh, and who is driving that? And um, I want to stay for a minute at the sort of more constitutional level of things, and that is um, the overall objective that uh, probably was shared more uh, in the past than today, and that was the idea of an ever closer union. Um, so really embedded in the, in the treaties from the beginning um, to work towards states and societies um, integrating further and really um, the pattern or the wording of the ever closer union is still there in the discourse, uh, probably more in the discourse of academics, uh, less so of practitioners, but it has lost quite a bit of ground because there is a controversy now within our member states and um, between over members, uh, our member states over the um, objective of um, you know, European integration at large. How far do we want to go? Um, I think the golden age probably of the ever closer union taking shape was really um, in the aftermath of the fall of the Iron Curtain, if you remember the breathtaking um, steps that were taken with the Treaty of Maastricht and then successive treaties throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, apart from the Constitutional Treaty, that was again a, a real attempt to work towards that ever closer union, give it constitutional dignity, but most of the treaties after Maastricht weren't what Maastricht was, this amazing ambition um, to create a political union, to create something that is a lot bigger um, than in a community of uh, economies that want to work together. So this golden age of the Treaty of Maastricht somehow looks like a relic of ancient times these days, um, when there was the ambition to build cooperation in justice and home affairs in um, foreign and security policy. Not that we don't feel that we need this cooperation right now, but it is more difficult to agree, agree on it and to set institutions and procedures in place at a constitutional level right now, um, because a lot of our um, citizens are asking questions about what is the point, what is the use of this. Um, if you remember the referenda in the course of the 90s and the early 2000s, including in in Sweden um, over key questions of uh, membership of the Eurozone, um, over key questions of the adoption of the Treaty of 
Lisbon, um, the French, uh, in a way, gave us already a glimpse uh, when, with a very slight majority, uh, the Treaty of Maastricht in the 90s, 1990s uh, passed. Uh, a core EU member state, a founding member of the European Union, then again in the 2005 referendum on the Treaty <clears throat> of Lisbon, um, what then later became the Treaty of Lisbon, obviously the big idea about an EU constitution, it was again two key founding members of the European Union, the French and the Dutch, saying, um, well, that people saying, well, what's the point? So the ever closer union as an objective in that who leads to what end has not been quite the focal point. Um, there is a lot more controversy nowadays around this. Um, but still, I mean, the commitment of EU capitals to further building the union uh, throughout the 90s and in the early 2000s uh, remained very strong at the same time. And those who were shaping EU politics or EU policies um, um, in the days, I'm sure we'll remember that it was a time and of course there was an acknowledgement of the expression of people's wills uh, and wishes, but I remember myself that the consequences did not quite uh, lead to completely different policy making. There was um, a bit of a fetish almost developing over any uh, new treaty reform and there was more of a break being put onto further enlargement of the European Union. But by and large, the mode of uh, working together and the ambition, the level of ambition, probably carried by the positive spirit of the 1990s, which I felt very strongly in my own country, unified, um, wind in our sails, um, we want to do more together as Europeans. So um, I think there was still at the level of governments the idea that um, ever closer union is something achievable, um, it is desirable, um, from a normative standpoint, obviously with various uh, different views in our member states, but by and large it was it was still happening. Um, it was even, well, if you look at the constitutional treaty um, in the days, there was even the attempt to give the union forged in Maastricht a new political dignity with a constitution, a European constitution, that then ended uh, in a bit more sober way in a treaty. Um, I'm not, I mean, I was very passionate in the days, um, but I, uh, about the European constitution as such, probably again more from an academic uh, point of view, um, but uh, we saw what happened to it, the struggles uh, to put it into place in the form of the Lisbon Treaty. So there was still a commitment of EU members um, to move at this level, um, at the constitutional level, um, and really, I believe the wake-up call has only come over the past 10 years um, in light of the aftermath of the global banking crisis um, that led to a financial crisis, that led to sovereign debt crises in EU, Eurozone, member states. And we all know the story, um, the difficulties really that the union had in keeping the centrifugal forces, um, keeping uh, the single currency um, and the crisis that was felt in very, very tangible ways in a lot of our member states. Um, the politicization, people going out to the streets, challenging um, their leaders and saying, hey, what are you doing? What's happening? What is this promise of a European Union? Um, it is not bringing us the um, convergence that we wanted. To us, it looks like we are the ones left most vulnerable. We are banking, we are bailing out the banks and uh, we are the ones being told that we have to stick with that because there is no alternative. So um, there has been a lot, and of course, again, very different in its political manifestations in new parties and movements, very different in each and every member state. But I think you can see similar 
themes uh, emerging where uh, eventually the peoples of Europe um, woke up more to a European political space. And that would be my observation that in a way Maastricht became a victim of what it aimed at creating. Um, the idea, of course, the big idea of Maastricht was to create a political union, to successively strengthen the role of the parliament, the European parliament, but also the role of national parliaments, if you remember. Well, then, of course, uh, parliaments want to have their say and the people have an influence. And that put the brakes on uh, what I called um, the idea of the ever uh, closer union. And um, after the um, financial and banking crisis, sovereign debt, and then real economic crisis in member states, we had yet another crisis that went deep to the core of uh, the identities of Europe's uh, peoples, and that was the uh, refugee management crisis, which I'm sure you felt similarly to um, my country, um, was really a very uh, divisive. Um, Germany, the German political system, um, has started to really change and transform and the German party system, to be a little bit more specific. We could talk about that if, if we wanted to. Um, but I think this was another example of where European leaders really understood that the modus operandi, the way that one has been going about European cooperation, leading the union to the ever closer union, was no longer to be the case, that um, a political union really meant less shaping change and shaping uh, the future of the European Union in intergovernmental settings of intergovernmental conferences, but it meant trying to shape majorities, um, both at the national level as well as at the European level. And your room for maneuver at the European level, of course it sounds banal, but I think everybody realized it somehow, um, that your room for maneuver at European level also has to do with um, um, the consensus or lack thereof in your own country. Now, so we, we are in a situation where um, the question of to what end, to what end leadership is really coming to a moment, I'm, I'm not saying of stance, but of reflection, of reassessment. And while there is still a significant uh, commitment of, of a lot of our governments and citizens to working together as Europeans, the shapes and forms that can take and the policy priorities have become more, well, more challenged, more debated, which I believe is a good sign for democracy, but obviously um, doesn't make for a very linear development and makes leadership also more difficult. Now, it's yet unclear what it really means for the future of the EU. I think. I mean, we see a manifestation of a lot of the frustration now in our home domestic environments where new parties and new forces are coming to the fore and many of them are articulating the European Union as a target. Um, the European parliamentary elections are likely going to be another battleground of that. I know it in my own country um, where we have forces emerging on the scene that have a a distinctly anti-EU view, um, aiming for a destruction of the EU and its institutions um, at a point in time when actually the most difficult sign of fragmentation of the European Union is happening, and that is the likely departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union at the end of March, even though I'm not very confident to place any bet on what's going to happen because it's just difficult uh, for me to understand what's going on in the United Kingdom. But um, 
Then there are other forces who obviously seem to want a different kind of European Union, a different way of cooperating, probably more of a sovereignist approach vis-à-vis uh, -vis a supranationalist approach. And, but they would be perfectly happy to operate within the corridor of uh, the EU system as such. Um, we are having big debates about our proclaimed values. And um, I think the European Parliament elections will be, um, from an analytical point of view, a very important uh, event uh, to dissect, to try and understand. Um, it would be, of course, too easy to say, well, then there's a populist uh, on the one hand and then there's a good uh, doers on the other hand. Um, also, I don't think this is the way that um, EU policymakers are looking at this. I think there is now a really nuanced understanding about what, what it means for the future of the EU. But I think the future of the EU is un unclear. Um, the main question is right now, will the political center hold um, with the makeup of the European Parliament, as you know, being really driven by a majority of the center right and the center left with... Um, uh, forces, liberal forces um, uh, at times. So um, the question is, is that going to hold or are we going to see a fragmentation of the parliament to an extent where the new forces, perhaps those forces who no longer want the union, are actually disturbing, delaying, or even shaping their own policies. Um, and I think this will be important for all those who believe strongly that leadership really, and I haven't talked about that, but it's very important, should be with the supranational institutions. And that's not only the European Parliament, but that is distinctly also the European Commission. So the moment in which we have a fragmented parliament um, and not clear majorities will make it more difficult. And because of the role of the European Parliament now, which I think is good, it's important to have uh, this role, to... Um, have a say in the nomination of the next president of the European Commission, uh, as well as the commissioners. But um, it will have an impact, and the fact um, that a, a fragmented European Parliament will probably not necessarily lead to a strong European Commission, um, but a weaker one is to, to concern of concern for those who really believe in strong supranational institutions exercising leadership. Now, but what really comes to my mind these days when I... Um, think about leadership in the European Union is the breathtaking return somehow at the same time, which is a bit funny because I talked about the people a lot, the breathtaking return of the capitals of the member states uh, themselves. It's a simultaneous development which you have seen over the course of the past years. The EU in crisis mode is one that has seen really executives coming to the fore. And um, the ad hoc I talked about earlier on has really been shaping a lot of the... Um, of the future direction of the European Union in, in, in some ways and has really brought uh, back to the table where we thought uh, there would be less of an, or an emphasis in the future, the capitals. Um, and it also brought the question of power of, of national capitals back to the table. Um, not that power was ever absent from the European Union integration process, but I think we Europeans like to think of ourselves as well, as in a way, a place where after the devastations of the 20th century, and my country um, was very much responsible for many of the atrocities, where we overcome the question of power with this powerful idea of abandoning power as in um, power only is with the big ones, power is only with those with the largest population, power is only with those who have the largest military. I mean, we like to still think of ourselves as having learned from history and um, now this brings us in a difficult situation because the question of power was brought back. Um, some countries were 
visibly more powerful than others, um, including Germany. Germany has seen an unprecedented moment and decade of power in the European Union, surely a volatile one. Um, but this does something to everybody else and does something to the system as well. Now, <clears throat> there is a, a development that um, really accelerates that trend of power being back at the conference tables um, of, of Brussels and elsewhere. And that is an international environment where power politics is back. So strong men, in particular strong men politics, increasingly shaping international relations, multilateralism, um, and I'm sure you have discussed that in other places also, um, multilateralism of which the EU is a prime example, is having a difficult time. And um, somehow the EU and it mem its members uh, today look like strangers in an environment where the survival of the fittest seems to count, um, where procedural approaches and uh, rules-based approaches to policymaking no longer seemed to be desirable, um, where even countries that were champions uh, of this are turning their back. And um, such tendencies are also no longer alien to the Union itself. I mean, we see it within the European Union. So I think this is a very dangerous moment because um, on the one hand, Europeans, if they want to remain collectively powerful, they have to play the power games that others are dictating. And that brings, accentuates what I've described as the destructive side of the power questions within the EU. Let me uh, just talk a little bit more about Germany. I mean, my country has been um, powerful in many ways, in particular in economic and trade terms, less so in security and defense, um, which others are reminding us of, I think, for all the right reasons. Um, this international environment, I think, forces Germany to go back to what is not really in its DNA. Uh, and that is a sort of flexing muscle power politics. And it also exposes more of the vulnerabilities um, of a country such as Germany. So it might be that other countries, ironically, even though at right now a lot of people would probably say, well, yes, the Germans, I mean, they, they can do a lot of things. This new environment might actually be one where the Germans find it more difficult. To, to act and engage and even lead because they are vulnerable in key areas uh, that is hard power, um, security and defense. Others might be better prepared just because of their mental, mental maps and uh, of their mindset. I'm thinking of the, the French, uh, others, uh, but probably also um, quite controversially, probably the United Kingdom um, that is seeing such a disruption now um, where I'd like to think that it's going to be really quite um, something that we also have to own in terms of the mess that is coming uh, out of that. It's probably going to hit in the short term the United Kingdom more uh, than, um, than the rest of the European Union. But maybe the UK is a better place to deal with an environment that in a way was no the norm for most of its history and where it managed to punch its weight. So this all has to do with the question of leadership, because if the environment changes so dramatically, the skill set is also a different one. And I'm wondering where that leaves the question of your leadership within the European context. Now, much of the debate about leadership in the EU has indeed um, circulated around the question of Germany over the past decade not only in academic circles, I think also probably not always that explicitly around um, negotiating tables. Um, this new German question that suddenly came up. Um, we all know the German question, um, this country in the heart of the continent um, being too big in some ways and too small in other ways. Um, the European Union, from the point of view of German foreign policy, has been the 
wonderful solution to overcome that question, but now it's back, as I described. And the German um, leadership has been, I think, a difficulty um, for, for quite a few countries uh, over the past years, where on the one hand, there is a great deal of expectation with regard to Berlin, but on the other hand, there is also frustration, um, which sometimes we encapsulate in this term, uh, damn if you do, damn if you don't. When you're leading, then you know this creates a lot of trouble. But I think in the European context, there is more to that because this has been really an unprecedented moment of, of German power. Um, this past decade will be closely also related to the leadership of uh, Chancellor Merkel, who undoubtedly um, the person he, who she is, um, and probably few will doubt that, um, was useful <laughs> in terms of keeping the union together, um, a politician, um, who puts not herself first, um, but tries uh, to put the collective action of the European Union first, um, still having to deal with the questions that others, the question that others increasingly started to have, and that is, if the Germans are so powerful, why are we not achieving what we should be achieving? Why is Germany not translating its power into a really sustainable reform of the Eurozone? Why is Germany not translating its power into also being more active in security and defense? So these questions are a bit sort of black, black and white. It's more complicated than that. If you go to Berlin, you get uh, a different sense because Berlin will always argue, well, we try to really keep the union together. And you know, there, there is, of course, good reason to say that, that Berlin was instrumental uh, to that end, but there is also this divisive factor and that in general relates uh, to German power because German power does something to others. And when it does not uh, deliver to expectations, which is probably also very difficult to achieve, then, then it's also problematic. And I think the, the, the problem um, with regard to German leadership um, over the past decade has been that at a point in time when the uh, successive governments of the Chancellor Merkel really already or still had room for maneuver to, to, to push the envelope to really uh, come to better results with regard to Eurozone reform uh, in particular. Even domestically, um, this was not done. And suddenly we saw a moment um, in which Germany looked rather powerless. And that had to do with the times of 2015 and 2016 that I'm sure many of you will also remember well when um, to my country, one million new arrivals came. Um, there was a sense of loss of control um, amongst the wider public. Um, the powerful Chancellor Merkel started, even started to, to shake uh, in her unchallenged position of, of leadership. And um, Germany needed Europeans to support um, what it really needed most. And that was a European solution because the very strong interest of Germany uh, is... Um, of course, to keep the single market, to keep the open borders. This is in our DNA. Our economy works like that. And this can only work if, if really the single market is protected. So open borders are vital. Um, but border management and border security and, and confidence and trust between EU member states is really vital in this regard. And the Germans were constantly reaching out alongside with a few others to say, well, we need to deal with this collectively. And um, it, it was quite dramatic in the sense that almost... Um, <clears throat> you could feel that when national or subnational, more in, in the days, uh, regional elections in the federal states of Germany uh, came up in early 2016, there was the, the sort of desperate cry, help us, um, we need to, to, to really put an end to this. And I think the Germans 
have not really understood um, that the time of German power is remembered in other EU capitals, not with all the sensitivities that come uh, along with it, despite all good intentions on the side of Berlin. And that shaped also the perception of Germany when it needed the others, when it, uh, in other words, was probably not powerless, but had less power. And it strikes me really that this is very often underestimated in my own country. I find it interesting. When I speak to, to a lot of uh, people in, in Berlin, my sense is that there is a conviction that we are doing this to really keep the unit together. We're doing a lot of things. Uh, our commitment is really about the EU as such. There is a little bit of uh, a lack of um, antenna for this question of um, the problematic side of, of German power. Now, what we also think of when we think about German power is the collective power of France and Germany. Um, and that has been yet again making the headlines because um, at a point in time when there is fragmentation all over and centrifugal forces, centrifugal forces pulling, of course, the question over where France and Germany are headed is absolutely vital. Um, we had an impressive attempt of a French president who fought a domestic battle that was really breathtaking um, from my perspective uh, and who um, put out a vision in the Sorbonne speech um, put also a vision to the Germans. I never considered uh, the Sorbonne speech of um, uh, President Macron a, a shopping list, essentially something that you need to then diligently work through, which sometimes I think Germany somehow got wrong um, in the overall perception of you know, what this uh, speech was about. Um, but in my reading, it has always been a bigger uh, idea, a more holistic idea about um, European economies and European societies succeeding collectively. Um, and uh, Berlin was absent for quite some time. We struggled um, to the surprise of many, but yes, Germany is a normal country as well. And we struggled to form a government for quite some time. And momentum lo was lost for France uh, and Germany to really lead um, the union. Um, not that I would only suspect leadership potential uh, in the camp of those two. Actually, we as the European Council on Foreign Relations, we are interested in the overall potential of all countries of the European Union to contribute uh, to healthy um, and, and vital union, and we believe what is key uh, to that is a certain leadership through coalition building. So um, we have an instrument that assesses the way that uh, European capitals collaborate with one another, um, and um, we are asking actually people who are doing this, who are shaping policy in all our capitals, um, a few people like myself, uh, think tank people to help us understand the data, but um, we've just come out um, with our interactive PDF for those of you who like uh, to sort of click themselves through, um, you know, um, what you see in front of your eyes on a screen and, and uh, are a little bit uh, tech, more tech uh, interested than I am at times. Um, this is an interesting thing because what we tried to map out was what essentially the 28 are thinking about one another. Whom do you trust? Whom do you want to work with? Whom do you want to lead with? Um, whom do you um, rely upon um, in terms of your shared interests, etc.? And what is surprising, in a way, and when we started off the project, we sort of had the working hypothesis that that might be the case, but it was interesting to see it in front of our eyes. When you think that cooperation towards a joint um, um, action at the European level is something that Europeans are doing all the time and are probably very good at, our data at least shows, well, that's really not quite the story. You see just very few 
bilateral relationships um, that are formative, that can lead, that can lead uh, probably not alone. Apart from the Franco-German um, bilateral relationship, which is the most important one, there are um, some, uh, including uh, the relationship that we see in our data between uh, your country and uh, Finland, for instance, between um, the Netherlands and Belgium, between the Germans and the Netherlands, etc. These in itself are not leadership coalitions, but they are building blocks. And um, what we see is really only eight of those strong bilateral relationships and a lot of underused potential. And for us, that was, um, that was really interesting to see. Um, we believe there is a lot still to do in terms of mobilizing again the collective uh, leadership of groups of member states. Um, we are following with great interest that um, also related to Brexit, of course, there is a new dynamic on this subject um, that uh, includes also, I believe, um, ambitions um, um, in, in Stockholm over um, ideas of a new Hanseatic League that the Dutch have been instrumental in, um, in bringing together. These are all uh, groupings that we are interested in because we want to try and understand um, and answer the question of leadership uh, potential and also leadership to what end. Um, so um, for us, these days are quite uh, fascinating because we see there is a, somehow a new race also for um, well, for becoming better at making yourself heard um, at the level in the concert of EU member states. And that's um, probably also simply related to the fact that all our governments are feeling they have to represent their people um, at the EU level and they want to have a say. Now, I talked already about uh, the Franco-German uh, relationship. Um, just a couple of features that um, strike us when we look at our data because we looked at um, some more specific questions that we put to our French and German respondents. And we asked them, where do you see most uh, convergence between, um, in terms of policy between both countries? Um, and um, in a way, overall, the picture is that the French and the Germans know about each other's differences, in particular when it comes to Eurozone reform, which you can call, and I think that is no small thing, a mature bilateral relationship. We know how different we are, which is, I think, a prerequisite to say, let's overcome the differences, but we know with regard to Eurozone reform, this hasn't materialized. Uh, when you're asking French policymakers and German policymakers, they will say, well, there is a need for joint action, but we are not at opposite ends, but we're very different in this regard. And this is the policy area that is likely to create the most controversy. There are other areas which are more consensus-oriented uh, uh, that includes uh, migration, uh, border control, uh, but also um, security and defense, where you see that the French respondents uh, don't have uh, probably so much uh, trust in in the Germans really being able to deliver in this, in this area, but still uh, there is a strong... Uh, agreement that uh, this is an area where French and German, France and Germany need to work together and collectively pull their weight. Um, you'd see it in other areas as well, some uh, more 21st century um, fields uh, that we started to look at eventually in terms of uh, climate um, change, uh, in terms of um, digitalization, etc. But by and large, apart from the overall commitment to keeping the union together and France and Germany knowing that they have a role in this, there is a lot of how do I say this in, in a friendly way? Um, because I'm, <laughs> I'm that kind of person. Um, of course, there is a lot of pressure to, to, to deliver beyond that on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, not necessarily in the constitutional um, um, high-up sphere uh, of European integration, um, but really uh, with regard to key policies that need to be shaped. 
And here the potential of France and Germany is yet to be exploited. And the international environment that the EU is operating in, and this is where I want to, to land uh, with my argument, of course asks for more than that. And if you look at the Treaty of uh, Aachen, the Traité d'Aix-la-Chapelle that was signed a couple of weeks ago, I mean, it's again, it's an important document in that on the level of ideas and joint ownership, France and Germany are there, and they also are there with others. And there is a, a whole number of countries that are not uh, big as France and Germany are. Uh, in our data, by the way, uh, Sweden is a very agile country when it comes to its networks. Uh, it's um, Despite its size and the fact that it's not a member of the Eurozone, it is um, on number six in, in, in our, among all the 28 countries, has been catching up quite a bit compared to studies we've done in the past, etc. So there, there is that level of ownership, but the real world is, is really asking for something else, and the real world is one where even the United States has started to drop the support of the European Union as a political project. And I think that is breathtaking, that is really damaging for the European Union, that puts additional pressure on the EU, because we could take for granted that the US was out there supporting, by and large, not everything we Europeans did, but the EU was something to, to uh, embrace and support. This is no longer. And this uh, has somewhat been, in the German context, a declaration of war. When uh, President-elect Donald Trump came out and said, well, um, I congratulate the United Kingdom for leaving the European Union. Um, I think others will follow suit. You can imagine that that sends shockwaves, um, probably also to a lot of other member states. Um, but it has an impact. Words um, carry weight and shape perceptions and... Um, the leadership um, that um, is, is required in such an environment uh, obviously has to get to some very hard policy choices. And um, that certainly relates to what um, I briefly touched upon, the ability of Europeans to defend themselves, um, the ability of Europeans to defend themselves more independently, the ability of Europeans to understand that this is a more adversarial world, and not a world in which we can, by and large, happily sail the waves of globalization and, uh, and benefit from it. And that, I think, makes leadership at this point in time very difficult because what I observe is a great deal, and that's quite understandable, of um, head-scratching over um, what that actually means for the EU collectively and for individual member states. And just to, to stay with Germany for a minute, the questions that probably a lot of people are asking themselves in Berlin right now is how can we engage in such an environment? Um, to, what does it mean for our engagement in the European Union? Surely for the time being, Berlin has advocated um, its response um, to the transatlantic environment changing, and that is a stronger European Union, so to refocus on making the Union stronger. But as I pointed out earlier on, there's also a number of um, tendencies that actually start to drive wedges into EU unity. Not only the most visible one, that is that is Brexit, um, but we see divide and rule games uh, played um, by the Russians and by the Chinese and others. And that's, um, that's creating a lot of questions uh, in Berlin right now. I'm sure others are doing it uh, as well. Where do we have to go? Where, to what end? <laughs> Where does leadership go? So this overall environment, I think, changes also the question of leadership. While in the course of the, um, of the past 10 years, we were probably looking quite a bit um, in an introvert way at um, 
leadership over key EU policies. Now we also have to look at at leadership in a in an international arena where the modes of cooperation are really changing dramatically. And I think answers that need to be crafted uh, to that um, are probably have to be a lot bolder um, than what Europeans have come up with uh, for the time being. Um, for now, I think um, by comparison to the drama of a, of a changing European and international environment, the ability of the EU and its members uh, to adapt and to change has been a more gradual one. Again, that's understandable and can be explained, um, but I think it's a problem um, for the EU um, because this is an environment where really the question of sovereignty um, is, um, is key. And um, if Europeans want to keep their sovereignty, they have to ask some uh, really tough questions over their own vulnerabilities. And so, together with what I described earlier on, that when I started um, my little introduction, um, who leads the European Union was, I'd like to think the people, and the do people do, they do increasingly shape what our governments think, what the European Parliament does, which I believe is essentially a, a good thing, comes an international environment um, that is um, asking for more cooperation, bold cooperation in bilateral ways, um, come the challenges that we see within the European Union over our proclaimed values, um, over even democracy and the rule of law itself. Um, we see the arenas of leadership really, um, or the arenas of policymaking really changing. Uh, in a way, a phase of a union that was more based on a, what I call a, a diplomatic Europe, a Europe where it was easier uh, somehow for national governments to exercise leadership because it was um, not sort of separated from where uh, our citizens were, that would be too much, but still quite distant. A lot of EU policymaking was not happening in the headlines um, for uh, most of the 1990s um, um, because it was very and large uh, uncontroversial. Um, leadership was exercised in intergovernmental settings of intergovernmental conferences. And now um, there are so many more arenas, the politicized arenas of the European Parliament, of the national uh, and subnational parliaments, um, this is an, a system that I think all member states and also political parties who are obviously coming to the fore um, still have to learn how to navigate. And so sometimes I think whether you know, we should just ditch the question of leadership in the EU context and basically talk about shaping majorities for collective action. And the question is whether there are enough political forces in all our countries uh, to advocate for such collective action in the EU system? Um, or whether um, we the people decide that our future is a different one? And um, leadership really in this sense is probably right now um, back with us, which I think is also probably a healthy moment because it makes uh, each and every one of us realize uh, again what is, what is at stake. And um, on that note, I would conclude and hope we're going to have a um, few challenges to, <laughs> to what I said. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Almut. Um, what I take from your um, presentation here is fragmentation, power actually does matter, uh, Germany and Franco-German relations. Is that... Is that the main themes that you see? Well, I see um, 
the main theme is that, that the question of leadership is really not easy to answer. Um, overall, you see relatively little leadership uh, right now, except from, of course, you know, by and large, it's not absent. You see leadership over the question of uh, the United Kingdom's EU future or future outside of the European Union in that we had strong leadership by Michel Barnier, um, supported by EU member states working together collectively. But by and large, uh, I feel there is a lack of leadership because there is a great deal of confusion over where the international system is headed, what it means for the European Union, and how we as um, EU capitals, not myself, but uh, EU governments um, are adapting to an increasingly politicized environment in which the people want to have their say and want to lead with their uh, ideas about a future cooperation, both at national level and at a European level. So in a way, um, 10 years ago, I would have responded to the question of leadership in a lot more narrow sense. Nowadays, it's a lot messier and maybe it's not even the right question to ask. Thank you. Bjorn, <laughs> give us your thoughts in a self-critical way completely because <laughs> I do ask this question myself all the time. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Almut, for this very rich uh, take on the, on the topic of leadership, really a 360 perspective on, on the topic. So quite difficult to, to comment on. I think I have two, um, two lines of, of comments or, or, or really questions back to you here. One on, on the link, which you do very eloquently between leadership and power and the other one on, on the link between leadership and politicization, uh, which you touched upon now uh, in the very end. But starting with, with power, I mean, Germany, I think it shares also with Sweden the, the fact that it is very much uh, invested in the current order, uh, an order of, of uh, multilateralism, of, of rule of law. I mean, we, we share a kind of a, a belief and a strategy uh, of convergence. Uh, convergence internally. Uh, our, our neighbors were supposed to catch up and, and imitate. Uh, I mean, I know you've read uh, Ivan Krastev's uh, paper also that he was going to publish soon, but he was here speaking before Christmas, talking about imitation, especially in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and the other belief was that of external convergence, that other regions will kind of imitate our, our model of regional integration. Um, and now we see that this kind of this bet on, on convergent is really not working out for us, uh, whether internally or externally. Uh, and as you said, that is more or less uh, a problem for different member states, but very much so for Germany and, and I would say also for Sweden. Uh, internally, the, the, the member, we have a kind of a, a backlash against this or the idea about imitation, um, not only, but specifically, I mean, uh, also, members in, in the Eastern Europe are less interested in this concept of imitation. And externally, of course, if you mentioned uh, Donald Trump, but, but other major powers as well, uh, really seem to, to welcome a new era of geopolitics and conflict uh, rather than kind of order and multilateralism. Um, so how do we manage this? And is there, I, I guess from a German perspective, there is a choice between, two difficult choices, but you have to do something. Either you become more of a, Kind of a geopolitical actor yourself, uh, with all that that would bring with it, or you invest more in the EU to be more of a, I mean, to 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 learn to play against it, you know, the rules of the jungle, to be become more of a geopolitical actor. Um, but when you listen to the to the, the rhetoric and, and look at what Germany does, I mean, for all the talk about the European armies, for example, uh, 
uh, when you scratch the surface, it is quite a lot about integration rather than power influence geopolitics. So what would it take for, for Germany to either invest in its own uh, capability as a more kind of uh, agile geopolitical player or as an alternative or, or a complement to invest more in the EU? What, what really would it take and what, are the, what do you see as the barriers towards that kind of development? Um, so that was my, my take on, on power. Um, on, on politicization, I think, I mean, if we accept that we live in a Europe that is now more politicized, um, more of a p political union rather than the only the, the, the traditional diplomatic forces of integration, uh, what does that imply for also the institutional leadership? I mean, you discussed to some extent the role of supranational uh, institutions in our internal workings in Europe. But I will also, and I really tie it to the first question, what does it mean, this new idea of politicization or the new reality of politicization, what does it mean for the for the institutional role in, in Europe's external relations and, and the projection of power? Um, as an example, we, we, we know that, the, for example, the European Commission has been a very forceful player in, in the neighborhood. Uh, and some would like to blame this kind of technocratic perspective on, for example, how the relationship, how the, the situation in, in Ukraine could escalate so quickly because we didn't see our own actions from a geopolitical lens, but others did. Uh, and that is one reason to why the conflict went the way it, way it did. Um, is there in, in the future uh, more of a role for the institutions to take on also this geopolitical responsibility? Or would you rather say that this kind of the geopolitical turn and the politicization also of the institutions makes them less uh, uh, forceful as leaders in this field? Will it really be up to the member states in the future also to project power uh, externally? That would be two, two questions to start with. Yes, thank you very much, Björn. I think on your quest, first question of um, what are Germany's choices, I think my answer would be a dual response, as you were implying already, that on the one hand, we will probably see or have to see we will probably see or have to see a more realism-driven Germany, a Germany that in itself individually is able to play more in this jungle. Um, but at the same time, the instinct of the Federal Republic will always be to do that alongside with an investment in the European Union, which in itself, as you described um, very um, compellingly, of course, is not immune to this development either. So I think what there is going to be is a, a reassessment what it takes in terms of um, power collectively as well. Um, one prime example, um, I found very interesting the confidence um, that the European Union and the European Commission in particular has shown over the trade dispute with the United States over the past months. Related also, of course, to key figures in the European Commission who have navigated this with a lot of uh, strength. And um, I find this a very illustrating example of how Europeans actually can navigate in such an environment when they pull their weight collectively and when they do it in a way that is really entangled with respective member states also using their power supporting um, um, the European institutions. If you look at the behavior of France and Germany um, in this, during this time, um, with the division of labor, it looked to me at least like that between President Macron and Chancellor Merkel with their own ways of dealing with President Trump. 
um, the hug and close and shake his hands and show him all the nice bits of uh, French uh, gloire uh, and power on the one hand um, and the Germans coming in with a kind of almost educational attempt to... Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm... And I don't mean to ridicule this because I think it was a serious, uh, it is a very serious, uh, of course, uh, attempt to, 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 you know, show what actually the European Union was about. But here, I think, was a very good example of tying both a more realistic assessment of that it takes big member states um, and that, that we have to tie this back to the institutions that bring us again back at the tables. Um, our relationship with Russia is probably yet another example um, where we have seen that, of course, um, President Putin thinks this postmodern idea of EU institutions is just ridiculous, um, that he will not engage with um, um, our foreign minister collectively, um, but he will want to engage with the big um, men and uh, surprisingly also women uh, that are around. And um, the EU system in a way um, accommodates, can accommodate that because it's about um, what we in theoretical terms, of course, are also discussing a lot, how to combine both the power of the member states, the power of strong member states with the power of institutions. And the balance, of course, needs to be right, which is particularly in the interest of those uh, member states who are not necessarily around the table of the big. I think this is one key strategic challenge um, for certainly my country to get that balance right. And um, I think this also goes then back to the politicization angle. I mean, um, I would envisage that um, in, in such an environment, obviously, um, this, this bringing back the member states and tying them to the EU institutions who themselves are, of course, not immune to the uh, politicization as we're describing. I mean, we will see at some stage um, a European Commission um, if uh, what polls are telling us that um, sovereignist forces are gaining ground in the European Parliament election. We will see an impact on the operations uh, within the European Parliament, but also in the European uh, commission. So that's what I wanted to express earlier on with the power is more and more with the people in that um, the integrationist, supranationalist drive that we have probably seen, the ever closer union pattern, etc., is not going to go away. This is still a theme that is there, but it's contested. And there are other forces that will um, have their say. They will sit around the tables, they will have commissioners, etc., etc. So this is in a way a more... Um, um, an environment where, where it somewhat comes organically that the politicization is not necessarily there to, to, to weaken the overall system if the forces of reason prevail, provided the forces of reason prevail. Um, but it also strengthens the role of governments in this system because they are being tied back increasingly to, um, you know, to the domestic environment. If that makes sense. You know, this would be a sort of dual answer to, to your question. And I think that there is a, the need to become a lot more realistic of what can be achieved. Uh, in particular with regard to what you addressed, um, and that is Europe's transformative power, um, which, I mean, a little, really not so long ago, was absolutely hailed as the success. Of course, from my perspective, living in, in the country that in itself saw, saw a reunification um, and then saw Central and Eastern Europe becoming part of the European Union, this was very powerful. This is a success story, uh, unbelievable success story. So we have a lot to lose there. But I think also to have a sense of realism about what we can achieve in our neighborhood and whether to really focus on our internal consolidation, which we're doing right now, is, is a choice, I think, that has to be made. Europe has to make uh, more choices. It cannot do everything um, uh, in the EU system. Thank you. I'm sure we have a very 
good questions from the audience waiting as well. Just one follow-up question here. I think it was very relevant and, and uh, good that, the, that you discussed the kind of synergies between member states and institutions. And I think both, as you mentioned, the, the kind of transatlantic relationship with Trump has been an excellent example of this, uh, but also the, the whole Brexit situation. Uh, but I'm I'm also curious about uh, if we if we turn the direction eastwards towards China, for example, do you think we see the same logic? I think several countries would hesitate to to what extent uh, Germany is really uh, putting a joint European effort to forefront here, or whether it will seeks out its kind of own relationship with with China. And this, of course, is a huge geopolitical question for the future. And, and any kind of future leadership as well. So, so would the logic be the same eastwards as we've seen west? Well, I guess by nature, the relationship between um, the EU and uh, EU member states and China is very different to the relationship with the United States, where, um, of course, um, the United States remain absolutely vital and important. Um, nobody questions that, um, at least for the time being. But at the same time, they have adversarial behavior and they are shifting their priorities. And that has to do with China. So I think European um, Europeans find themselves now increasingly um, in an environment where China on the one hand and the US on the other hand are interacting with one another and we are somehow in the middle but we are also a player of course but the last thing we want is to be dragged into um, um, the competition of the two which can very easily happen and then um, your question regarding Germany um, I, I think that that is the question of balance that I try to um, talk about uh, and and the sort of the the push because of an international environment that is so more competitive um, of uh, each and every single member to say to reassess a common interest. And for now, the common interest um, in my country will still be defined very much related to the EU. And so there will be, I'm confident uh, about this, the attempt to balance our individual relationship with China, which is strong, which is of concern to a lot of uh, partners as well. There's joint cabinet meetings. There is such a tremendous economic uh, interest in each other, etc. I mean, Germany is not the only country, but of course that has always created the question of uh, how European is Germany in its China policy. And I think this is something also very closely to watch um, in terms of, you know, how the Germans balance their relationship with the Chinese vis-a-vis -vis the um, uh, embedding um, their ambitions in the wider EU context. And I think the geopolitical question that you're describing um, is just the one that um, German political culture um, and really, most importantly, the German public is not very confident about. We're just not used to it. We're really not used to it. I'm, I'm a product of the Federal Republic, really, um, as, as many others, completely changing um, its thinking. And, you know, we have good reason to be very proud of that. Um, but that makes it probably more difficult um, for the Germans to adapt to this environment because the public is quite not quite there. If you speak to German MPs um, who are engaging in foreign and security policy, they will tell you how difficult it is to speak in their constituencies and to raise awareness for how dangerous this world has actually become and what it means and what we have to do in order to preserve the wealth that we have. It's uh, I can recommend a very, very good article by the um, foreign policy advisor of the federal president, Thomas Bagger, in the Washington Quarterly just a couple of days ago, where he describes, I think, very power in very powerful ways why the current environment is really um, so difficult uh, for Germany and why this is so problematic because of Germany's cloud and influence, uh, of course, at EU level uh, and also globally. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Good. Okay. So let's open up for questions from the audience. We do have microphones. I have one here from Jaren to start off. Hello. Thank you, Almond. I'm Joran von Sydow of CIEPS. Thanks a lot for this very interesting lecture. Now, obviously, this is indeed a very complex uh, story you're telling and a very complex concept in itself, leadership. Now, you talked a lot about the supply or possible lack of supply of leadership, a lot about the constraints in various ways, institutional, political, etc. Now, my question is then on the demand side, because what we hear is also it's a, it's a bit of a longer story of changing elite citizen ties or linkages between citizens, voters and elites that has been going on for a number of decades, loosening of these ties that we used to believe in authority in a different way. So my question is simple, but maybe a bit difficult then. What do citizens ask for? What, what's the demand for leadership? What, what, do you hear that? And what way would it, what would it look like? Thank you. Coming back to the to what end part of Almut's presentation. Let's do a second question. Uh, my question is concerning the uh, Aachen Agreement, which was signed recently. What's the feature of that? And what's the additional of what we did not have in the past? That's a simple question. And let's do a third question as well. Let you finish right in there before we launch two quick ones for you. <laughs> and that is um, Hungary. What is um, the way in which the European Union handled the Hungary democratic backsliding question and continues to do so? What does that tell us about leadership, the challenges of leadership, and leadership over what? And secondly, perhaps um, you're well-placed to speak to Another question which requires looking into the crystal ball, what do we do after Merkel? She's done, what, how will that affect matters? Is it something to worry about? Is this natural evolution? We should just accept it. Thank you, Ilva. Um, if only I knew, what do our citizens ask for? <laughs> As a think tank, I'm a little bit helpless. I am not quite confident enough to have the legitimacy to answer that question. But what I would say is um, our citizens are expecting a lot of what uh, President Macron and others have been describing as a, a Europe that protects. They want uh, the safety, the physical safety. They want um, uh, to be uh, living a life where they know the future of their children is going to be a good one. Um, we all want to do the things that we thought we could take for granted. Um, you know, that, that is a, um, maybe a superficial response um, to your question, but um, I think that's what I wanted to articulate in a more general way earlier on, that the question what our citizens want is now absolutely relevant, and in the EU context it was a lot less relevant. Um, because of this elite project, which, is, which it still is by and large being so uncontested for such a long time, um, you can explain why that was. From my country's perspective, I can explain that uh, quite strongly. Probably in Sweden, um, the consensus um, or you know the way of looking at the union is very different because of joining at a later stage, having different depths of integration, also having um, probably a different role in the EU. I mean, in Germany, over the decades of membership, this was just essentially what brought us back into the community of, of uh, Western nations. That was one pillar. The other one was the transatlantic one. 
And um, so, you know, I think the, the important um, feature of today's EU is that it has to matter what the citizens think because they are increasingly telling us, they are increasingly telling us with force that the way things have been operating is not what they want. And um, we are trying to draw the consequences. We politicians are scratching their heads, um, uh, trying to understand what it means. And I think um, probably it's not so much about the EU level um, um, or the national level or the sub-national level, but it's essentially about um, the future of our economies and our democracies in a day and age where things that we thought we can take for granted uh, is just um, no longer really to be taken for granted. Um, the Aachen Agreement, um, as far as I understood your question was, what does it have that it, the previous treaty didn't have and what is the future for it? Um, so I think that the German government um, still very strongly believes in the uh, Traité d'Elysée and uh, the Elysée Treaty in its original way, signed in, uh, or, you know, it came into force in 1963, is a, is a very um, important one that remains valid. So there is no replacement um, by the Traité d'Aix-la-Chapelle. I think um, um, both governments were interested in cementing again at a point in time when a lot of... Um, Partners are doing reverse gear and advocating for less cooperation and advocating for less uh, also integration um, that France and Germany that are still there, are still committed to each other, but also to the wider EU. If I look at what the future is um, for, the, for the treaty, um, and I'm the first to acknowledge that it is actually important, it does matter what France and Germany do at this point in time. Um, um, the, the, the proof is really in the doing. I mean, this cannot... The Franco-German relationship, to quite some extent, has lived of the symbolism of the past. And that is understandable, but I think there is now... This, this has run into limitations. We need action that brings us into the future. So if you're asking me what the future of the um, Treaty of Aachen is, where interestingly, and that would be a difference to the Elysee Treaty, because um, you can't really compare uh, uh, the two... Um, um, but the focus in the um, Aachen Treaty now is a lot more on security and defense, which defense, which was in the interest of of Paris and all the difficult questions uh, related to that, whether France and Germany can really deliver and the Germans in particular, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think the most important um, piece would be to start doing things now that visibly show that there is actually an Aachen program. And one Aachen program for me is, and I don't read the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle as one only between France and Germany. It is a treaty that is embedded in an EU institutional environment that wasn't there in 1963 uh, when the Elysee was signed. Now there is a mature more difficult, more messy EU environment that is there. And my expectation, if I could wish for a functioning Franco-German alliance, would be, for instance, um, that we see a direct impact of um, Germany and France alongside with the other Europeans in the uh, UN Security Council, just a very practical example, because Germany has uh, taken a seat. I understand uh, Sweden was uh, having quite an impact and visibility uh, as well, at least that's what I also felt in Berlin. Um, Germany has taken its seat uh, as a non-permanent member. There is a lot of things um, that need to be discussed. There is... Um, um, quite a few Europeans uh, there as well, with the Belgians uh, and the Poles. Um, the Brits are on their way out, but still Europeans, and obviously the French. So for me, Aix-la-Chapelle would mean 
um, to work on some of the very difficult dossiers together as France and Germany pulling their weight alongside with the other EU Europeans, tie that back to the EU debates we're having um, uh, in the EU institutions over um, foreign and security policy. And that um, sounds somehow banal, um, but if I look at the list of priorities um, that at least my foreign ministry put forward of what uh, one wants to tackle, there is nothing wrong with the um, um, the main points there, but I'm missing, for instance, something that is key to European security, and that is Syria. And here I'd say, you know, if if the spirit of Aachen or the spirit of cooperation between France and Germany alongside with its EU partners is not looking at the key issues, then there is little value in it. Um, so that would be my, um, my, my answer. Um, on Hungary, the leadership lessons on Hungary. Um, Yes, I knew this was no place for easy questions. Um, <laughs> the politicization is very clear. The way that the German Conservative Party, Angela Merkel herself, have looked at um, where Viktor Orban has taken Hungary, I think is a good example of how political Europe is on the one hand taking shape alongside with diplomatic Europe. One was missing, I was missing, a strong voice that was Angela Merkel basically saying, look, this is not possible. We cannot uh, have a European Union that wants to be a transformative power um, and that has EU member states who happily benefit uh, from our European environment but who violate um, parts of the Copenhagen criteria. I was expecting this because I believe we need to, and here's uh, the reason why, I think we need to really show to our own citizens um, that of course it matters what's happening in Hungary and we don't give our citizens the chance um, to stand up and be advocates with us. And they are asking, uh, I think, for European leaders, those, uh, um, you know, um, um, who are criticizing Hungary quite strongly in civil society, etc. They are expecting um, European leaders also to be more clear. Some have been clearer than others. President Macron uh, has been more uh, taking on the role of the political uh, adversary, adversary in Viktor Orban. But um, the German decision or the decision of the European People's Party member, uh, that is Chancellor Merkel as a politician, uh, alongside with the Spitzenkandidat Manfred Weber, has been, is it not better on the one hand uh, to try and use the diplomatic path, hence political Europe on the one hand, but diplomatic Europe also being quite strongly there, to use the diplomatic path to be a little bit behind closed doors when we're criticizing, and at the same time, of course, the very political um, assessment that losing Fidesz as part of the European People's Party would be a serious blow um, uh, to um, the composition of the groups in the European Parliament. So I think this would be an example um, of how uh, leadership calculations <laughs> are being politicized and um, how I would say... Um, Leaders are also struggling with this new environment and not finding the right uh, answers. Um, we see a slightly different case in, in, in Poland, um, where also the EU institutions have at an earlier stage uh, taking on, etc., etc. But it's quite interesting. I found always that there was a tendency to leave this job more to a technocratic rule of law, etc., procedure, rather than battling out, uh, it out in the open in a political way. And that was always... Sorry, almost a helplessness uh, because this was just unthinkable a little while ago because we are victims to our own story that we are the good ones and suddenly this is no longer really, really the case and we have to say to ourselves, well, maybe 
um, our normative uh, assumption and our idea about ourselves is not quite matching the reality. Um, is there a time after Angela Merkel? Hmm. <laughs> um, it was for me, it was quite interesting to see the extent to which over the past um, years, and I've been working in um, Berlin for about 10 years now, um, the focus on uh, Chancellor Merkel has been so strong. In a way, it's understandable, but of course, there's a lot happening underneath as well. Um, in the party system, we have seen a party system really going um, more fragmented. We now have seven parties in the German Bundestag. In the early days, we started really off with three slash four parties. Um, we have a force with the Alternative für Deutschland, um, which with more than 90 seats in a parliament of a bit more than 700 seats, is really a shock to the political culture. So um, the contestation um, over the um, succession of Angela Merkel has been really ongoing over the past months, which um, uh, also um, shows the extent to which um, the centre-right now wants to reclaim some of its territory. So um, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, which I'm sure many of you will know, but often we're getting requests as if the Federal Republic really was about one lady on the on the top and the focus on her has been uh, quite strong and some of the other bits have been, have been missed. Um, I thought it was interesting to see um, the extent to which the CDU and Angela Merkel managed to recover. Uh, when last year, um, uh, including in the battle between the Bavarian version of the CDU, the CSU, which surprisingly many people across Europe now know, <laughs> which <laughs> for a German is quite interesting, um, that um, there was a clear risk of a, a rupture between the CDU and the CSU, which had been in a natural um, sisterhood slash brotherhood um, since the inception of the, of the Federal Republic. And now this is, is somewhat being pacified. And Angela Merkel played a strong role in that, which was an indication of uh, her power still. A lot of people already said, well, now she's really, this is her one song. But she managed to get in place the party leader in her own party, um, who was her favorite candidate. Um, I think now there's also an interesting division of labor between Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer and herself. She does more international affairs, Angela Merkel more European affairs. Um, she has to deal less with the party um, uh, right now. And then um, the maneuvering around Manfred Weber becoming the Spitzenkandidat um, of both the CDU and the CSU and uh, as a matter of fact, of course, the, the EPP um, as such has also pacified the rift um, between those two sister parties. So the power of Angela Merkel, and she has stabilized in the polls now, um, is still quite there. Um, the succession, I, I, the crystal ball is when does she leave the stage? I mean, is there going to be early elections? I think early elections are only um, going to happen. Um, right now they're not. Um, I wouldn't be able to say with confidence, you know, whether she stays until the end of her term, because as I said, there is a lot of uh, things that can pop up again. For now, the most important issue also in, uh, in terms of policy, the refugee crisis has somewhat uh, calmed down and settled. Um, uh, so I think we can see also a legislature that is, um, provided the Social Democrats manage to survive um, 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 the next uh, months, is seeing some sort of stability and is coming to an end and then there are regular elections. But this year is an important one for Germany because less so because of the European Parliament elections, that as well, because the AfD is now only having one seat in the European Parliament. Its uh, projections are at about 15 seats, so it's going to make a um, uh, quite a jump uh, and the parties of the center are 
set uh, to go down. The Greens are actually going up quite significantly as well. The Liberals, uh, the FDP, are on the rise, which is good news for La République en Marche and Macron's ambitions um, because they said they would go together um, uh, in a potential grouping, etc. So there's a lot happening there, but uh, more importantly, there are federal there are elections in three federal states in the fall, in September and October, uh, in East Germany. And in East Germany, in Thuringia, in Saxony, and Brandenburg, um, the AfD and the party left of the SPD, Die Linke, has the most potential still. So this will be really, um, I believe, uh, even more important for the German uh, political environment. And the, uh, obviously the, the center right and center left are both with regard to the AfD on the right and to the um, left, uh, on the left of the SPD, uh, trying to regain uh, territory. Um, to avoid the worst. Um, and you can see that in policy adaptation, etc. I'm going deep into German uh, politics and I'm somewhat ducking away the question of the future of Angela Merkel, but there will be a future. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Let's do another round of questions. We have one question here and up there. Thanks. Thanks very much Please for that. Uh, Glenn Hodgson with Free Trade Europa. You talked a lot about the, uh, the Franco-German alliance, the kind of the old Europe, if you will. Um, I think it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about sort of the role for Sweden, Nordic partners, uh, the other uh, free trade, uh, openness, rule of law countries and how Germany will work with them to write large this kind of relationship and put the stamp on the European Union policy of the future. Thank you. Uh, up here, yeah. Um, hello. I admire Germany for its humanitarian handling of the refugee crisis. But is it possible that Germany has exercised too much power within the EU? It seems to me that it has pushed Greece around economically. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, Ashen Treaty, how solid is it? Will it survive Merkel and Macron? That's the first question. Second one is, how open is it to partnerships? And the third question is, is this the start of a two-tier EU, the North and the South. And a final question. Yes. Um, the question maybe is relevant, maybe not, but I have to ask because we said before about crisis and we have also the climate crisis that is very important. And uh, I want to ask if this is a, um, a factor that can bring together the European countries and, uh, you know, like... Uh, Punish the borders, like planet has not actual borders. So if there is a, a chance there, so come together and have uh, more cooperation and uh, implementing the agenda 2030. Thank you. To come uh, to the question, to the very good question of uh, who are other allies, and I was focusing um, because of the invitation to this um, to the seminar, I was focusing mostly on the Franco-German, but actually, as I pointed out, we are very interested in what is happening uh, elsewhere. And we have these uh, little profiles, you know, this looks a bit funny to you, a bit complex, but this is Sweden's EU coalition potential, yeah? And it's actually very good. 
<laughs> because Sweden is ranking six uh, um, among all 28 EU member states with its potential um, to have networks across the EU. And we have a whole lot of indicators. Actually, basically, it's all um, online, um, free of charge. You can browse it yourself on the website of the ECFR. It's called the EU Coalition Explorer. And the results for Sweden are interesting in that um, Sweden is a, in a, an example of a country that... Um, is very agile, has proven to be very agile, um, has very um, good, not always uh, necessarily shared interest 100% with Germany, but very good relations with Germany, one of the key platforms uh, around which European cooperation rotates. Um, and um, Sweden is also um, obviously a country with a strong bilateral relationship with Finland. Finland itself has a very good relationship with Germany. You see already, if you look a little bit deeper into the what we call a coalition profile of a country, um, here is a country that has more of a regional focus, what we believe um, that this is now the time to think also beyond geography um, because uh, many of the issues that we are looking at are... Um, sort of disconnected from from uh, geography they are about uh, like-mindedness as you pointed out i mean and the german government itself uh, or the german foreign office has um, adapted adopted a policy of like-mindedness working more with the countries that we actually know we get on with rather than investing which is also very important in the more conflictual relationships so to do both actually and to fill that with life um, and I think for for Germany also Sweden um, is very interesting by the way um, as I pointed out earlier it doesn't really matter in our analysis that Sweden is not a member of the eurozone so the argument that it is often made that you know you can only really drive and shape etc etc when you are part of this is not quite what holds true in, in our data. Um, we are following with interest um, what I, you know, what the has been called the Hanseatic League, um, whether, you know, I will hear hopefully hear a little bit more um, um, whether that is a coalition that is going to last for longer, that is going beyond the policy of the Eurozone. Um, obviously in Berlin that was noted, um, certainly with a great deal of interest. In general, I think the Germans are very interested in, you know, other Others being energetic in coalition building, but obviously this is also um, the Germans are trying to bridge to France, and um, the opposition to French visions about eurozone reform are, are detectable, um, which I don't think is a you know just from an analytical point of view that's the way to do it. You're shaping majorities, you're doing it um, alongside with others. So um, this is what we see uh, also in our data. We have a group of countries that we try to understand a little bit better. Where we say, well, if you came up with a coalition that is non-existent, um, and that would be interesting to look at, it would be, and um, we drafted questions around that, what we call a group of the affluent seven. That would be the three Nordics, the Benelux, and Austria. Um, Austria probably would not qualify um, as much right now, but we started with a concept a few years ago, and we just wanted to make the point that you can look at coalition building also through the lens of like-mindedness in terms of how to run your countries, in uh, outlook on... Uh, um, you know, liberalism in terms of, of trade, in terms of uh, values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So just to um, make the point that we have to look beyond the, the usual axis um, that um, we have seen, um, because the EU game has become so much more dynamic. Um, we have a whole number, if you're interested to look deeper into this, um, um, observations about the lack of ties between the East and the West. So the so-called East-West divide is real. Um, there's very little happening 
um, outside the Visegrad, uh, the V4 of Poland, of Hungary, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. They're a very introspective group. They're engaging very little with the rest of the EU. Um, there is only one tie between Berlin and uh, Poland and, and Warsaw, that, which is absolutely difficult right now. That stands out in our data as a as a as a key sort of uh, tie, a key link. Um, other than that, there is there is little. Um, some way somehow the Nordic and I was talking to Ilva about this earlier on. The Nordics uh, um, are somewhat isolated, regionally isolated as well, and sort of from our perspective, clearly analytical, not operational. I'm not in policy making, but. There is opportunities to sort of move beyond that on thematic issues um, that we also try to map in the Explorer. A bit of advert, uh, if you allow. I did it now. I, uh, but this also it. ties into the question of too much Germany. and the Yes, and this this is what I try to say. I mean, the question of German power is really one where every, often... Um, there is the acknowledgement that without German power, we would be not better off. <laughs> Actually, it's important to have a powerful Germany. But at the same time, of course, um, um, there was a feeling very strongly in Greece to be pushed around um, by um, you know, the whole debate that we saw branded as austerity um, versus growth. Um, very real. This is very real. And this needs to be taken seriously. This has created major rifts. The anti-German sentiment across um uh, parts of our societies in new member states is strong and it is there and I think I would wish as I pointed out my um, um, you know my country to be a little bit more aware of this because we often think that we have so many good intentions on the refugee management crisis for instance the um, the fact that Germany alongside with a few others insisted on having the qualified majority vote um, on the quotas where to put uh, um, the new arrivals was hugely damaging. Um, I think Angela Merkel has even acknowledged in the meantime that it was a mistake. Um, Ivan Krastev talks about this a lot, I think, in a very compelling way. My colleague, uh, our head of the Warsaw office, does. This was just too much. These questions you cannot uh, sort out with qualified majority voting. You need to have the sensitivity that it's about identity of our, our peoples and um, we all have a different history and uh, the makeup of our societies is, is also different. Um, so I, I do think there's a very important place for this debate um, um, around you know the question over what German power does, does to others. And I wish my leaders would address this more openly at times. Um, there is also an interesting passage about this in the um, paper that I just mentioned by this uh, senior German uh, diplomat who is actually having an impact on shaping policy in the Washington uh, Quarterly. Um, now, how solid is Aachen and uh, is this paving the way for a two-tier European Union? I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting. I, I, I hear about that, of course, in other parts um, of the EU as well. Um, I don't see that. I think there is no reason to worry that um, France and Germany would not see themselves embedded in the in the EU system. You know, just so many factors speak against that. Um, but I think in terms of process, as far as I know, um, there was little knowledge about this uh, um, this happening, what shape it would take, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think it's important for France and Germany to. Um, even though they make it clear in the treaty, it's explicitly in the treaty that there is an openness for others, that this is not something that replaces any other uh, EU treaty. Um, uh, and there has also been an emphasis by um, leaders in my country uh, in advocating or explaining the treaty that, of course, it's open to others. But, I mean, it doesn't mean that uh, I believe other countries should enter the Aachen um, uh, treaty. Um, the idea is sort of almost a civilizational one that goes back to the Elysee Treaty that um, Aachen is, is um, conceptualized like um, the Elysee Treaty was as something 
uh, obviously not being an, 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 a treaty between governments merely at a given point in time, but it is about tying societies, economies, um, more difficult, um, and you know, vision closer to one another by um, creating joint um, institutions, joint cooperation, etc. And um, if you look at the more interesting, more tangible bits, um, that is, for instance, um, in cross-border cooperation and how to make that happen. It's happening very little. We have so many neighbors and in the um, trans-border uh, uh, areas there is still, I mean, there is a lot of activity but it can be absolutely triggered. There is a lot on um, um, even, you know, on, on doing things together abroad since, you know, punching our weight. Um, the French are very proud of having a cultural foreign policy. The Germans have discovered that. So what's happening in the next um, months and years is joint Franco-German cultural institutes in important parts of, of Europe, you know, with one director and then, you know, doing things together. So it's more about um, bringing our countries, um, uh, or the societies, the peoples of our countries closer together. And that is clearly beyond any intergovernmental treaty. Um, that the idea is it goes beyond Merkel and Macron. It is something that reaffirms what was started in 63, um, exchange of students, etc. All of that is, is, is very important. But, uh, the climate crisis coming together. I think, I mean, I am, you know, the German debate is really messy on you know, our role. On the one hand, we'd like to think that we're champions of pretty much everything. You know, we're good at a lot of things and we're the good guys. Um, we know it's, it's not quite so uh, true and a lot of the issues we're discussing around climate policy, um, the Germans have been lagging behind in many ways. Um, the German auto industry is playing its role in many of the conversations we're having right now. It's actually very controversial uh, within my country. So um, that explains also that, of course, in the level of parole and the level of what you say, um, there is a strong commitment also in Aachen Treaty to work with the French, etc. But in the level of the doing things, again, are more complicated. I like to think that we can be much quicker um, in, in doing what needs doing. Um, but I'm not an expert in climate, uh, EU climate action, so I'm not confident enough to sort of say that with, with enough knowledge. Um, I would say that um, the German piece in it is a more difficult one. We're going to have to round up there because we should have been out of here five minutes ago but uh, thank you so much Alma thank you for sharing with us the uh, the political and the practical and the philosophical question of leadership in the EU uh, and for showing us the complexities of these issues and um, we hope thank you also Björn and your audience who have come here and asked these difficult questions for us uh, we hope this is part of the debate and we look forward to continue it when the anthology is out thank you so much for tonight Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.